I'm Morris Coyle and uh, it's second year English class, honours English. So who's your teacher? Mr O'Brien. He writes in his foot. That's strange, isn't it? <laughs> I saw him on the first day driving in school and I thought that he, um, he's just a normal and then I saw him getting out of the car and he unstrapped his sort of shoulder from the um, special sort of steering wheel he has and it sort of surprised me. Everyone likes him because he's good personality and he's just decent to everyone. I saw him a year before we came here, which has been three years ago, because my brother's in the school now. He's in uh, fourth year transition year and <coughs> I was fairly surprised at first. I hadn't heard about him. When I first saw him, I was in fifth class because I came here in fifth and um, I was going up to the yard and I just saw him coming down the steps. And uh, I was just kind of wondering, like, why was he like that? Or I asked my mum. It was something to do with, like, some drug that his mum took yeah. when he was pregnant. And that caused him to have some um, um, disabled parts. Like, he, was, he didn't come in the full package. My name is Pat Keating. I'm principal here in CBC Monkstown Park. I came in here in the summer of 1986 and I met my predecessor, a Christian brother called John Brennan. And we went through all the arrangements about the handover to me and the staffing and the budgets and a whole myriad of things, which took about six weeks. And on the last day, as John Brennan was leaving to go to his new school, he said to me in a slightly shifty voice as he was about to go, by the way, there's a diploma student coming in and he has no arms. So I said, what? And he explained that he had known Jerry previously and Jerry had completed the law degree and wanted to train as a teacher and he had no arms and he was coming into the school. And Brother Brennan was terribly sorry and if I really objected that I didn't have to have him. So I thought about this. I, I remember going home and saying, well, if the guy has gone through college, presumably he knows how to run his life. So if he's going to come in, fine. We'll, we'll see how things go. There must be ways he can cope. And that's how I was introduced to Jerry O'Brien. What people do like when they come into school is, Jesus, look at your mouth, no arms, you know what I mean? But then when you kind of start talking to him, you kind of forget all that. You just kind of see him as a person like that, you know, just has a slight disability. Like if you look at him, he looks like really severe, but after a while it kind of fades away. You just see him as a friend or a person, depending on how well you know him kind of thing. That's what happened to me anyway. 13th of March, 1986, um, was the end of my period as auditor of the Law Society. There was a party disco thing that was run in one of the nightclubs in town that had been an absolute disaster and I was quite upset about it. I was in a dress suit, in a grey crombie and I got on the 46A and came out, came out to Monkstown having made an appointment to get part-time teaching hours with Brother Brennan. Um, came down, the place, the school was quite different to this extension that we're in now, wasn't built at the time. Um, there was various different entrances and the place was just all... I arrived at the change of classes and the place seemed absolutely mad and there was loads of noise and all the rest of it. I had a headache from the night before. I wasn't feeling the best and I was kind of wondering how, how wise I was um, to, be, to be coming here. Saw himself um, and he said to me that he saw no problem with me um, being here and that he could see no problem with any discipline problems, etc., that he felt that things could go very well, except that he said, having known me and having taught me, that he felt that I might have this idea that I might change the world or change the, change the vision of um, education and that 
as long as I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that, that everything would, would be fine. Well, I'm Ian McIntyre and I'm in TY1, which is the first of two transition year classes. And uh, Jerry's the coordinator of the whole TY. And so far, like this year, we've been away um, to Connemara on an adventure week and been to work experience. And um, we've started the musical, which will be on um, in November. And uh, so we've, like, the whole midterm is taken up by rehearsals and... You know, so we've been around him a lot over the last while, and Ty would have a closer link to him than most classes because he's with us most of the time. You know, he's no different than any the rest of us. Like he mightn't have two arms, and you know, he's, he's a false leg, but like he's still a he's still a person, and he's you know he's probably a better person now because he has that. You know, his personality is brilliant, and he's like really sound, and um, he's just an ordinary person. Can we run that again? She breaks on blue, and you come in on. But one thing is clear as can be, or whatever. She breaks on blue, according to my script. No, finale act two. Yeah. I was asked recently if the whole musical thing and the whole involvement was an overcompensation, and I, I did a double take on it really because I kind of wondered to a certain extent if it is, if. It is a question of like just busying myself so that I don't have to face problems. And, and I, I would have to say, honestly, that perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. But I don't think so, because it's not my only motivation. The buzz is, it, the buzz is there. You know, you don't get it. When you're overcompensating, you don't, you're, you're, you know, you, your motivation is different. So therefore, the buzz wouldn't be there. The buzz is incredible from it to see them develop and to see them take the thing themselves. All right. Skies may not always be blue. Right, can we take from the beginning? I was sick the very beginning of the pregnancy. I had flu, some something, and I was going to the doctor, and uh, he was giving me injections or whatever, and didn't know I was pregnant, of course. But you don't, at six weeks, know you're pregnant, do you? So I don't know what I took. I I had to leave them right in the house, like you know, because there was no cell by dates in any of them at that stage in 1964. You cannot have a photograph of yourself swallowing a thalidomide tablet, you know, mm. that you can't prove it. You can't prove that you took it, you know. I wasn't allowed to see him. I wasn't allowed out of the bed for three weeks. I didn't see him for three weeks. They wouldn't tell me anything. They wouldn't tell me a thing. They just said he's very weak, and they didn't think he'd survive. That's all I heard. He had jaundice as well, and they didn't think he'd come out of it. So he fought everything. He was gorgeous. He was a beautiful baby. I wonder if I could produce some photographs for you now. He was lovely. He was a lovely baby. 
no matter what that would be wrong with him I'm sure you want him to live I was praying that he'd live there was masses being said that he would die and there was friends of mine getting masses said that he would go that's just too much of a cross for anyone to have I was praying that he'd survive and everyone else was praying that he'd die I could understand my mother, like, she couldn't see, like, how I could go through life and or how, how she couldn't see any future, you know. I mean, I know what age she was at that stage, but uh, I didn't look at it that way at all. He was there and that was it. I was told by another doctor I should have had an abortion, but that's... <laughs> how could you have an abortion? The child was alive. My earliest memory, I think, would be my mother and myself when I was about three trying to put on an artificial arm thing that I had gotten in the States because I'd been in the States in 1967 for six months because they couldn't um, make an artificial leg for me here. So I was sent away to a Shriners Hospital in St. Louis for six months. And um, <clears throat> I remember coming back. My mother only had a visa for three months and then she had to come home and I refused to speak to her when I got home. Seemingly, I was horrible. I came back with an American accent as well. Um, I was a horrible child when I came back. I refused to speak to her for weeks, I think. I could only see him twice a week while I was over, uh, while I stayed there. And uh, then I had to leave him behind and come home. That was horrendous. It was desperate. I had to say goodbye to him. And everyone was in floods. Nurses, everyone. And he was, of course, kicking up murder. He followed me down and he wasn't able to walk. He just, you know, slid along after me. And he knew. He was so clever. Even at that age, he knew I was going and I wasn't coming back. You know, that he wasn't going to see me for a while. He came home and then we met him in Shannon. And it was all grandma. And he ignored me. He ignored me. At two and a half years of age, he just ice. For a few days, it was ice and a real American accent, Kitty Cat, the cat, you know. My father died in 1973 of lung cancer after a long battle with um, the thalidomide board with regard to the whole thalidomide question, which I was refused um, the week my father died. The refusal came on a Friday and Dan died Saturday, so I never told him. I never told him he was turned down. You know, he needed me difference. He didn't have to know at that stage. But anyway, he didn't know he was going to die at all. He was full of life. He was a bit like John. I was 12 and I went to Lourdes. I had um, a local priest, Father Fian, who was, who was very generous, um, sponsored me to go over to Lourdes. Um, um, I think principally because I had won a number of talent competitions singing. And I think they liked the idea I think they would have. I think they did like the idea of um, a boy soprano going to Lourdes with the with the diocese, and it was a nice idea and all the rest of it. And I sang at mass and all the rest of it. But I really was expecting something to happen. I went down to the baths and I was stripped and wrapped in a loincloth, which was absolutely freezing and immersed. And uh, you know, like the ten seconds, it was like slow motion. I expected. I I did expect something to happen, because these things happened. You know, this is Lourdes. This is where. You, this is why you were here, and you know. The only thing that happened was that I was really surprised that when I got back out of the, got back out of the bath, I was really I was really warm instead of freezing, even though the water was freezing. That was the only thing I remember, and it happened the three times that I did it. That, that when I came out, I was warm. I wasn't frozen solid. So, 
and my mother said it then as well. She went to back. She said, God, I was wondering when something happened, you know, while you were over there. And it was a whole kind of routine. It was a whole comedy routine. You used to go on then about God, you know, um, sprouting limbs like a tree. If I, if I hadn't, if it hadn't, if it had happened the first time, I wouldn't have been able to go back a second time because I could have probably sprouted something else or whatever. But I mean, like the, the whole. <laughs> into his mind because I've never seen him any different to me, to Podrick, his best friend, to any of us. And I think that's where he wants it though. Because if we all thought of him as being handicapped and all the rest of it, we'd, he maybe, we'd probably see it as a chore getting him up in the morning or bringing him to the toilet and washing him his hair and all the rest of it. Whereas I don't see, as a, see it as a chore, it's just he needs it to be done and I just do it. No, I don't even think about it, it's just done. He's sitting there, he's saying I need to go to the toilet. That's it, it's done. Or, Jodie, I need to wash my, hair. wash my hair, it's done. Or, I want to go to bed now, so we just go up and undress him, get him into bed clothes, and that's it. I go to bed then. It's no, I never, never saw him as a handicapped person. Friends of mine who, through me, had met Jared, and, of course, went through the initial, almost ranging from shock to surprise stage, which to me was very strange at that stage, because I knew him so well. But they, some people, in particular, got through that so quickly and, like, sitting beside him in the pub, you know, I'd have been handing him his pint all night. I turn around to talk to somebody else and they find themselves almost without thinking about it, lifting up the pint and giving it to him. And I think one or two of them remarked to me afterwards, like, thinking about doing that, I, I really thought I couldn't do it. But once I'd done it, it was the most natural thing in the world. And I think the key to that is the way Jared reacts to it. I really feel it's a tribute to Jerry in that... Sometimes I pause and think of the enormous amount of extra work that he has to, uh, or he's involved in, to do the ordinary things in life. I mean, not even just going to the toilet, but as he says himself, doing up his buttons, that he's got to have somebody to dress him in the morning and undress him in the evening because he can't undo his shirt buttons. Um, and I, as I said, I think it's a tribute to Jerry that you don't tend to notice that. Certainly I don't notice it. There's never been the slightest problem. Uh, there, I think part of it is too that I think like going to the toilet he has had this since childhood and because of his personality he has a great lack of embarrassment he'll just say to people that he knows well want to go to the toilet now and once it's happened once it becomes sort of part of the routine but it is just so natural and uh, you know feeding them the cups of coffee helping with various other things it's just so natural that one tends to cease to notice it. Um, one example that just struck me was we were out having a drink one night after a meeting in the school. We tend to go around the corner to the pub. And 
I went home about 11 o'clock and Jerry went home and he just mentioned to me the following day, just casually in conversation, that he hadn't been to bed until two because there was nobody in the house, so nobody to undo the shirt buttons and he had to wait until somebody came in at 2am. And I think leading from that is this total dependence on other people for all sorts of ordinary things, which would drive me mad, but which he just takes for granted as part of his life. I remember the first time I would have had to go to, we were on a trip to the north and we spent seven, seven hours on a bus trip to Derry, which is an extraordinarily long time, but that's another story. But I knew on the way up, it was my first time going away with him. I only knew him about three or four weeks at this stage. And I knew that I was going to have to look after him, uh, probably bring him to the toilet. And I really felt nervous about it. And we got off the bus in the school in Derry and he just turned around to me very casually and he says, Brian, can you can we go to the toilet? And it just relaxed me completely. You know, I'd, and it was something that I'd, I, in a way, had been dreading. I'd never had to do anything like that before. And I just went in and that was it. And I mean, uh, I suppose in a lot of ways I've never looked back since. I never think about it. I never think about him as being disabled or, or anything like that. I actually never asked the question, why can't I have a straightforward life like everyone else? I've, I never, I've never asked myself that because it just isn't a, it, it isn't a possibility. So there's no point exploring the, going down the avenue. It's, and it's like even the whole question of thalidomide. The thalidomide issue is a dead issue now. It's, it's just dead, and that's that. And there is no point saying, if I had gotten money or if I had gotten compensation, things would have been better. But yes, they would be better. I would be in a situation where I'd be, where I'd be living in a house, and that's what I would like. Uh, Three-bedroom, semi-detached, middle-class nightmare is what I'm after at the moment. And that's the way it is. But with regard to growing up, there were frustrating times. I mean, it's the same thing again. It's the, it's the getting dressed... Getting dressed and going to the toilet are the big issues in my life. That's that's what it is. And getting up and going out. And that's grand. Once once I have that done, I'm fine. But I mean, the, the frustration would really have arisen with going to the toilet. That, that would always have been the problem of I remember walking home one time because I insisted on walking home and I got to the front door and I was so delighted that I got home. I wet myself like <laughs> I mean that I had that I'd gotten there. And that was the nature of it. And that, that's the nature of the frustration. Even now, it is still an issue in my life. I have, to be very, I have to be very careful about who I ask. I have asked some people and I've been told that I'm not to ask again. I've been um, refused or people have almost died of embarrassment or whatever. And, you know, as someone said it to me recently that had to bring me for the first time and they said something about, like, this is more embarrassing for me than it is for you. He said, and it is, I mean, that is the bottom line. It isn't embarrassing to me because I can't have it embarrassing because I have to go to the toilet. And that's that. And I mean, these elaborate whistles that go on when you're inside in a cubicle and all the rest of it and sort of some people you can't talk to if you're in a cubicle because you might be seen and you might be heard and people might think that you were in here doing something or whatever. And like, I mean, there's, there's been various hilarious stories about, you know, a um, fellow in Club Nassau in when I went to college in first year that um, I had to go to the toilet and tottered off down to the toilet after some um, some drinks and uh, went into the toilet and closed the cubicle door and all the rest of it and there was no bolt in it and my friend that was ringing me, Andrew, um, had his foot against the door and this fellow pushed the door open and said, oh, Jesus, hard at it, lads. Sorry for disturbing you. And like the two of us fell around the place laughing, you know, 
fell around for laughing at the whole idea of it. But some people just would die at the concept of that. In one class that I had last year, I looked across the front row and there was six in the six out of the whole six in the front row of eight had brought me to the toilet and had had no problem with it and all the rest of it. And that was that. And there was no question of them having any fear of being um, branded or, or whatever because they all had girlfriends and all had this, that and the other and they didn't give a damn. And that was that. It wasn't an, it wasn't an issue to them because they had dealt with it in their minds that if they knew me for a long time, they saw my own friends, they saw how much I depended on them, they saw my friends on the staff, that it was just part and parcel of me having to go to the toilet. Well, I was in first year in college, I was about, I was 19 years of age and I was coming up from Thorless. Monday lunchtime, I decided I was getting the train back around one o'clock from Thorless and got up at about 25 past 12 and there was no car in the house so I had to run all the way to the station and I was running into the platform and the train was in and I, had the t I already had a, a ticket in my pocket so I just, just leaped straight onto the train and as I leaped onto the train, the foot of my leg, my artificial leg got caught underneath the train and I kept going and it didn't and it just sort of kept going in the opposite direction. So it fell down underneath the train and I fell flat on my face. And there was a howl from some poor old lady that thought I was killed stone dead. And there was a, another howl of laughter from me because I realised how hilarious the whole thing was about to become because my leg was gone. Like, and I was lying there on the train saying, oh, Jesus, my leg is gone. And uh, anyway, we had to go, the inspector, the inspector who was just about to blow the whistle and wave the flag and send the train off I sort of stuck my head out the side of the door and I said uh, my leg is under the train and he didn't know what I was talking about so I had to f point out to him that my artificial leg was actually down there lying underneath the train so the poor man had to lie down I can't actually remember whether he had, he, he certainly lay down on on the platform I mean that was the funniest thing and his hat was off and everything and he was lying on the ground and his arm the whole way down the side of the train I think he had to get some sort of hook thing to try and get it back up. And I could delay the train by about 15 minutes and I was just roaring laughing at the whole idea of what was happening, you know. But uh, it was priceless. I moved to another carriage then to try and regain some dignity and composure. Like we went to the pictures one night in Stillorgan and we came out and Jared was driving the car and he got into the car and the two guys had got into the car beside us first and had noticed him walking up and knew obviously that, that he was handicapped and watched like you know and you could see they were sitting in the car waiting to see what was going to happen next because he was at the driver's seat so i whispered like out of the side of my mouth as you said the two lads are watching now i said to start up so i leant over and i started up the car and we put it into reverse and we started to reverse out but i leant across and started to do the steering so it looked like the jar was only pressing the pedals and that i had to do everything else well, I think the guys must have followed us nearly the whole way back to Monkstown <laughs> to watch and everything. And we, I don't know how they thought we were driving because like, we were falling around the place laughing like, at the same time. And every turn we came to, I was turning the wheel, like, but I wasn't really. Like, he was doing it with his shoulder pad, but I, I'd say like, they went home scratching their heads anyway, <laughs> wondering what, how the hell he was allowed on yeah. the road at all. Putting the car in reverse. I'm backing out. It's an automatic gearbox. I'm steering with the steering, steering lever that's on the door called a joystick steering device and um, it was purchased in England. Princely sum of £7,000 Irish um, at the time because the rates have changed now. Um, it's a very sensitive device. It takes 
a movement of six degrees to lock it a full 45 degrees to the right or left, which means that it's very sensitive. Um, it's a hydraulic system. Now, I have a secondary control box at my left foot, which is part of my, um, the foot that's part of, if you like, part of my artificial leg, and that operates the lights, uh, dim and flash, um, electric window, down and up, horn, wipers, and um, windscreen wash. The shoulder lever is um, shaped to for my shoulder to fit into it, um, designed for me, purpose built for me in England. It's the one thing I've always said that I would do, and that was to drive. Uh, there was no question in my mind that I wouldn't ever drive because I just always felt that, you know, technology being what it was, that it would always be possible for me to drive with a bit of help, with a little bit of design imaginative design I'd be able to do it and my mother as she said to me she's often said it to me that uh, it was always she always felt that I was mad that I would never be able to drive and what was I talking about and as she said herself about it to me recently that you know she sort of kind of let me off for God's sake the poor Egypt kind of thing he's really done it this time it's flipped Take all of me. Can't you see that I'm no good without you? Take these lips, I want to lose them. Take these arms, I'll never use them. Your goodbyes left me with eyes that cry. How can go on living without you. You took the part that once was my heart, so why not take all of me? I was passing Pat Fox's classroom door and he was standing at the classroom door and he turned to me and he said, Jerry, your name came up at the board of management last night. And I said, oh, oh God, did it? Why? Well, I couldn't tell you that, it's confidential information. And he closed his classroom door, and I had to go to class. And I can't remember who I had, but they didn't get any teaching that particular morning because I steamed and fumed inside in my classroom, walking around, throwing my head and saying, oh my God, my God, what happened, what happened? So anyway, by the end of the 45-minute period, I had myself in a frenzy. And I just decided, oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God, what did, what did they say about me? So anyway, I swept out of my classroom in high dudgeon. I went across to Mr. Fox's room and I waited till his class had left and I closed the door behind them and I put my back to the door and I said, there is nobody coming in here until you tell me what they said about me at the board of management last night. He said, I cannot tell you. He said, it's confidential. I said, you can't leave me stewing here for the next six months wondering what they said. I said, I won't say a word to anyone about um, the fact that you told me. And he said... All right, but you're not going to like it. And I said, oh, all right. Well, tell me. Well, there was a complaint from a parent. I said, what? A complaint from a parent? Why, what did I do? Well, 
this particular mother rang up and said that she couldn't keep her hands off the boys and would you ever leave them alone? <laughs> and I looked at him for a minute and I was kind of going, but I never talk. And then I just said, you bastard. <laughs> and he had me going, he had me going for 45 minutes. It was desperate. Desperate. It's very, very, very clear that the children literally become blind to his handicap after a while. Didn't see it as this survey showed last year when they, this, the people from the rehabilitation came in to talk to Transition Year about handicap. And they were doing a survey and uh, the 24 boys in the class were issued with a survey. And the question was, do you know somebody with a handicap? And seemingly, I think 20 of the 24 replied they knew nobody with a handicap. They literally had become blind to his physical disability. Where, where? Oh, he doesn't know where it is. Oh, it is. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. It's driving me bananas. <laughs> It'll be over on Saturday. Yes. It went fine. The, there was uh, some hitches um, in it that I didn't, uh, that I noticed, but nobody else did. Like the uh, musical director, like who we met and brought it up. Final night with the boyfriend. Um, we had full houses every night, and a lot of positive stuff. A lot of positive, positive feedback. So I'm very happy. And I'm going in about three minutes down to give the pep talk to the cast and to wind them up and to wind them down and do all sorts of things. I don't know what, I don't know what exactly the effect of it is, but they sort of like it. They've grown to expect it. I know I say um, something different every night. This is, as Brian says, the most important night. I talked about complacency last night. I felt you were very relaxed. I don't think you're relaxed tonight. I think it can be absolutely brilliant. But as Brian says, if you can control, if you can keep the hyperactivity, the energy that you have, that I can see, I can, I can almost touch it. It's really like you're hyper. Please, please remember the instructions about silence and all the rest of it, please, because it's very, very important.
Petty. Oh, you startled me. Ah, you're English. I thought you were French. Did you honestly? Well, I'm not. I didn't mean to be rude. Um, that's all right. It's just that I'm rather fed up with France. But... Are you? I can't imagine how a pretty little thing like you could be fed up with anything. Well, I am. And not just with France. I'm also fed up with boys. With boys? Why don't you not try something older, then? Something older? Yes, like me, for instance. I may be too well to run a mile. Run a mile? Yes, run a mile, but there's one thing I still do very well. I may be too well to climb a stile. Climb a stile? Yes, climb a stile, but there's one thing at which I still excel. Although my hair is turning gray. Yes, it's rather gray. I still believe it when I say. It's never too late to have a fling. Water's just as nice as spring, and it's never too late to fall in love. It's never too late to wink an eye. I'll do it until the day I die, and it's never too late to fall in love. I think I probably would always have seen the the ideal lifestyle was the marriage and and the kids and the all that kind of thing and i i like kids and i'd love to have my own kids and i'd love to be married to somebody to share my life with and sometimes it is i mean i'm very public and i'm i my whole life is very public i have no very little privacy in my life because of of my own situation but it would be nice to come home to somebody and just be able to sit down and say oh god like and just know that they were going to be there and they were going to accept whatever it was that you were saying oh god about and that you had a problem or whatever. It would be nice to, to share that with somebody. You know, I mean, uh, I suppose it's the basic loneliness of the human being kind of thing. I think people really need some comfort when they go home. And th- this this particular situation that I'm now in is, is, is all very well. It's a bachelor pad and it's grand and it's fine. But it does lack something. It lacks, it lacks warmth, I suppose, and it lacks the sort of... Um, companionship that you know that I would like to that I would strive for I worry about the fact that you know you still say right he's got so far but how far more can he get like he's very caught up because it's a vicious circle in Dublin with rent and all the rest if there was some allowance made for you know if he had some kind of an allowance there should be I think an allowance a disabled allowance or a mobility allowance or some kind of allowance like they have over, you know. And I don't want to see him going to England. I kept him home this length of time. I don't want to see him going now. When I go, who's going to look after him? Like, he has nobody. He can't rely on some poor young lad coming up from the third the country who's going to be stuck in Dublin and need something. But I don't think he sees me that way. But I am the last. I would like, if I, like, if I went this Christmas, what was he going to do? Like, he'd probably end up in, like he said himself, he'd probably end up in a Cheshire home. We were saying, no, that'd be so stupid, not at all. But he's right, he has a point. He, need, he needs something permanent in his life. I do think that um, a lot depends on one's individual personality, as I said, that Jerry could be sitting at home and he could be drawing social welfare allowances and instead he's paying, and maybe I should mention this, he's paying this crippling amount of tax. Now... I do feel very strongly that Jerry O'Brien should have at least double the normal single tax-free allowance because he has to have somebody living with him and he has an awful lot of extra expenses. He can't cook for himself, so he's got to buy in food. Um, 
I'm sure there are a lot of other examples where he's involved in extra expense because of his disability and yet he's paying tax the same as everybody else. Now, as I said, if he was a different personality, he'd have sat at home. He wouldn't be earning. He wouldn't be paying tax and contributing to the economy. And uh, I do think if I could put this plug in that he should get special tax-free allowances to recognise the special circumstances he's in. The biggest problem for me now <clears throat> that I face is the whole question of accommodation and what I'm going to do in terms of a more settled um, accommodation situation. Um, up to now, I've always depended on people like Podrick, who was fabulous to live with, and people like Sean Coffey, who was fabulous to live with, and so easy going, and so easy, you know, easy to deal with, and all the rest of it. You know, it was goodwill, and it was friends that I was living with. And now it's Jody I'm living with, and um, he's brilliant as well. Like, just the whole question, you know, there's nothing that is a problem. But all of these people have their own lives. All of these people <clears throat> have to get on with their own lives. It'd be a shame if his lifestyle has to change in any way whatsoever. I mean, if he, if he had to go into care or anything like that, it'd be absolutely a shame, you know? I mean, so many people would lose out on, on a situation like that. His, his pupils, his friends, especially his pupils. I mean, he's, I mean, you've been around the school, you've seen the reaction to the pupils have to him. I mean, he's, not all of them would, would love him, but every one of them would respect him. I mean, and there are pupils that, that would genuinely, almost like brotherly love for him and will do things for him. I mean, and, and when you, when somebody, I, I, I used to measure it by thinking that if you can bring out qualities like that in a 15 year old, I mean, you really are doing something good. The problem is that I am teaching in one of the most uh, expensive belts of uh, property belts in, in Dublin. And I can't afford to live here. I can afford to rent here. The rent is, is very reasonable in this house. But I can't rent forever because the rent is eventually going to go up. There is no tax relief on it. Um, I mean, I will be in a situation pretty soon where I'm going to be paying the full rent on my own without any tax relief. And I don't think that that's I don't think that's on. I feel that there should be some allowance whereby somebody like myself that can't live alone or, you know, that needs as much help as I do, that I should have some situation where there should be some government financed um, mortgage situation where I can buy a house where I need to buy a house and not buy a house where I can afford to buy one because I can afford to buy one in Lucan or I can afford to buy one in Swords or in in the absolute satellites of, of Dublin, but I can't afford to live there. I can't afford the time and I haven't got a network. I have a, an enormous network of people around around the area that will help help me out in any situation that I'm in. I can't expect them to drive five miles or six miles to come and rescue me. And I, it wouldn't be practical either because I could be in very sticky situations at various times or even, I mean, I've had to drive, at other times I've had to drive five miles to go to the toilet. Because what he lacks in limb, in many respects, he makes up for a neck. He's had to have a very strong neck. And um, without it, he'd have sunk. He's not going to sink, he's a, he's a, he's a swimmer. All of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see that Seeing somebody who can be so cheerful, so good, so helpful to other people, with his physical handicaps and not bearing a grudge against anybody or anything. 
because he is as he is, but just getting on with life and being so cheerful and optimistic. Sometimes, you know, if you feel down or fed up and you look at him and you think, well, I have nothing really to be feeling down or fed up about. If you know him and you like him, you can't. It's like just doing a thing for a friend. Like, say, if a friend's on crutches, a good friend, you might carry his bag like, to the next classroom or something. But Mr. O'Brien, like, you like him. Not that you feel sorry for him, you just, you're just willing to help him because you like him. And he, a lot of people see him as a friend, so like, do things, things for your friends. Like, and part of doing things for Mr. O'Brien, if you're a friend, is just help him around. If I looked ahead, I'd go mad. You cannot look ahead at that stage. I'm inclined to look ahead a bit more now because, well, I say, well, what happens when I'm gone, you know? He has no house, you know, this, you know. I'd like to see him settled in Dublin with a house of his own, like, and things might work out that bit better for him then, like, you know? He could start up another little network for himself. The network might farm again, you know, fall into line, you know. The bottom line, my bottom line of where I would like to go is I would like to be married or I would like to be in a permanent relationship and I would like to have children because I think I could offer a lot to children. So baby, take the rest. Why not take all of me?